0: God, thank you for speaking to us. And we pray, God, that you would help us to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand it, and that in understanding your word, we may believe it, and in believing your word, we may follow it in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory, and all that we do as the Dawson family of faith that we do for you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 this morning, verses 12 through 18. We've been beautifully led in worship by our sanctuary choir and our sanctuary ensemble this morning. And as we continue to listen to and speak to us, uh, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 will be our God. I wonder where you go to have your big questions answered. I mean, questions that are just beyond the, the realm of your knowledge, what you just hold up there, and the memories that you have. But when, when you can't answer something, where do you turn to? It was a day an age in our culture where we turned to libraries. You would physically go to a library and uh, walk through books and stacks of books and journals to be able to find Your answer. There were times that many of you remember very fondly, and maybe uh, you had a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannica, and then you would go to the A's or to the B's or to the C's to be able to get the knowledge that you need. Now, you have knowledge in your back pocket in a smartphone. Uh, You have the ability to ask your phone questions. You can ask Siri any kind of question that you would want to ask Siri. At our house, we have what's called the uh, Echo Dot. Amazon produces it. And A- Amazon has its version of Siri, which is Alexa. And so every morning our boys wake up and I always hear Alexa telling us, as they've asked, what is the weather in Homewood, Alabama? And Alexa is talking to us and telling us the chance of rain at our house. Now, Alexa is good and Siri, she, she's good. They're all good to be able to give you kind of factual information. What time do the Barons play uh, this weekend? They can tell you that. What time uh, does the Cleveland, or do the Cleveland Cavaliers, do they play game seven? They, they can tell you that. But i tell you what Siri has a difficulty with are big questions. I asked Siri this past week, asked Siri, where does true hope reside? Kind of a <laughs> I, just wanted, I just wanted to know, you know, what does Siri do with a question like that? You know, not who was the fourth, question, uh, fourth president, But Siri told me when I asked uh, Siri, where does true hope reside? Uh, This was the answer. You will know it when you know it. (laughs) It is what it is. I mean, you know, what what better answer than that? So not so helpful. So life's essential questions oftentimes are not answered in the easiest ways or the most uh, accessible ways to us. And so as we're walking through God's Word in the book of James, There are going to be three big questions, not the only questions in life, but three questions that are beyond Alexa's programming to be able to answer, beyond Siri's normal answers. And these are the three questions. I'm just going to give them to you from the outset, and then we're going to look into James 1, 12 through 18 to answer the questions. The first question is, where does hope come from in the midst of difficult trials? Secondly, where does temptation come from? come from in the midst of difficult times? And thirdly, where do good gifts come from in the midst of daily living? Don't worry about getting those down. We'll come back to them. You'll see real clearly. Now, some of you are walking with us. We're going through the book of James. If this is your first Sunday to be with us, we've made our way from James 1, and we've gotten all the way into verse So we're four verses into James. And all of a sudden, I'm fast-forwarding. I've got the remote control, and I've pushed fast-forward. And we've skipped verse 5 and gone all the way uh, past verse 11 here. And some of you are saying, I knew he would do this. I knew it. That preacher talks about walking through God's Word. And then here's some he's talking about possessions, talking about wisdom. So he decided just to skip this. Well, obviously, I'm talking about it. And and I I want you to know that we're going to come to this. James' structure is unique. It's sort of proverbial in in structure. What that means is, is James will pick up a theme, introduce it, sort of put it to the side and come back to it. And so the the parts that I have skipped, I have skipped because he's going to come back to them, wisdom and possessions. And he's going to further expound upon them in greater detail. So instead of putting one toe into those themes, backing out and being immersed later on, we're we're going to dive headfirst into the sections of wisdom and possessions, coming back to those sections there. So we'll come to them, trust me. Now, as we look at these three questions... Uh, you need to understand that the source of hope in the midst of difficult trials is found when you look forward. So look forward to discover a source of hope in the midst of difficult trials. Look at with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James's brother is Jesus. It's very likely that James heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5 begins with the beatitudes, blessed are, so blessed is the blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, blessed are the meat, for they shall inherit the earth and so forth. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, there is a sense in the beatitudes where there's a flip-flopping of conventional wisdom. And James picks up on that genre of blessed is, and he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There, there's a sense in which this is oxymoronic. There's a sense in which this seems to be a conventional contradiction to our common sense. I mean, we don't say blessed and the person who is enduring trials. We don't, we don't put those things together. We think trials are the opposite of living the blessed life. And James says, no, 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 no. And you remember, if you were with us last week, if not, you can go back and look at verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4 of James chapter 1. Because he's already talked about this theme when he says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And so he comes back to this and he says, not only can you count it all joy, but you can be seen as a blessed person when you understand your destination, when you look forward to, and he says here in this passage, those who have stood the test, who will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this isn't to earn your salvation by remaining steadfast, but rather those who love him, who have professed their faith in him, they remain steadfast and they are shown to have saving faith. What awaits the person who has placed their faith in Christ as their Savior? Well, a crown of life. There are five references in the New Testament to crowns, one of them being here in James, the crown of life. Walking through the New Testament, you will see the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You will see the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, and a crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter Five. Now, we think of crowns, and we have the wrong image in our mind. Oftentimes, we think of crowns, especially with the uh, Netflix, the crown, Queen Elizabeth, that gets in our mind. And we're thinking of this sort of ornate, jewel-ordained crown of majesty that a queen would wear. That, that's not the reference that James is talking about here. James, James is pointing back to a time of kind of the pre-Olympic days where you had these athletic events and the victor would have been shown to all that this is the person who is the, the highest achieving athlete by a crown of garland being placed on their head, a, a garland wreath that would be laid upon their head there. So he's he's appealing to that image, bringing it here. Now, is this crown a literal crown? Is this crown something that you receive uh, Over and beyond your salvation? And I think the answer is no. When you look at all five of these references in the New Testament, they're metaphors. They're illustrations to talk about what eternity is going to be like. Eternity is going to be a place of eternal life, the crown of life. It is going to be a place of eternal Rejoicing, the crown of rejoicing. It is going to be incorruptible. It is going to be a place of eternal righteousness. It's going to be a place of eternal glory. So these crowns are metaphors that talk about what heaven is going to be like for us. And there's a sense in which James is saying, no matter what you're going through, look ahead, because the certainty of your destination should spur you on to faithfulness, understanding this is not the end. Your circumstances, they don't get the last word as a believer. So no matter how difficult your trial is, no matter how difficult your circumstances and your surroundings are, when you look ahead to the finality of where this earthly life is going to bridge into an eternal life, you have hope no matter how difficult your earthly life is. Uh, Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite authors and counselor, speaker. He has a book called Forever. A lot of his stuff is so very helpful. He talks about in this book, which is talking about heaven, he talks about in this book uh, an analogy of what this earthly life looks like in comparison to our eternal life. And he talks about the difference of, uh, of the way that you feel this when you're camping, when you're tent camping. This is what he says. I think it's helpful for us. On that first day in the woods, putting up the tent is so exciting. But three days later, your tent has unpleasant odors that you can't explain. You love the taste of food cooked over an open flame. But three days later, you're tired of foraging for wood, and you're irritated by how fast it burns. You're excited at the prospect of of, uh, fishing in the stream that runs behind your campsite, which is reported to be teeming with trout. But all you've snagged are the roots on the bottom. You're now four days in, and you're back really you look into what once was an ice and food-filled cooler to see family steaks that you've reserved for this night floating gray and oozing in a pool of blood-stained water, suddenly you begin to think fondly of home. You stand there hoping that someone will break the silence and say, why don't we just go home? Your four days in the wilderness have accomplished their mission. They've prepared you to appreciate home. And then he says, and you see it on the screen, our world isn't a very good amusement park or resort. No, it it is a broken place groaning for redemption. Here is meant to make us long for forever. Here is meant to prepare us for eternity. I think all of us are thankful for the affluence in which we live. None of us would want to romanticize times where disease was rampant. All of the, the oh, I remember it when, all of those times were not as glorious as they remember them, we remember them to be. But there is a sense that in the 21st century, especially in America, we are dealing with both the blessing and the curse of affluence all around us. If you have to wake up in the middle of the night and take a pot to the outhouse, you don't think to yourself, man, I've got it made. (laughs) And I'm not romanticizing indoor plumbing, but I am saying life is so easy for so many of us. That maybe we're living in a generation that, that when Christians think of heaven, they're tempted to be disappointed of what they lose on earth. Maybe this is one of the first generations that has been tempted to make earth heaven. In years before us, the pains and the sufferings, the trials of life, we were so present, they were so close when a mother loses seven children at birth. She doesn't think to herself, "How long can I stay here on Earth?" There's a sense in which she thinks, "I cannot wait to get to that grand reunion. And I think there's a sense in which we, we've lost a sense of anticipation for what is going to be so glorious in heaven because we've bought into the law that it doesn't get any better than what we can make on earth. And it seems in the 21st century that one of the ways that God uses trials is to wake us up to the reality that this place isn't home. That the new heavens and the new earth will be far beyond anything that we can make in our ingenuity and in our resources. That there is a greater, more grander vision of eternity that awaits us. And James says, when you're going through difficulties, look forward to discover a source of hope in the midst of of difficult trials. Number two, he says, look within to discover the source of temptation in the midst of difficult times. In verse 13 and 15, notice what he says in James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It seems as if James is making a sharp turn. He's driving along and all of a sudden he doesn't see this big turn and he just turns. But in actuality, trials and temptation are very close. That that in actuality, the trial of the death of a loved one oftentimes can bring the temptation to distrust God's love and providence. The trial of financial difficulty can also at times lead to the temptation of bitterness and the temptation to doubt God's providence and his love in your life. Not always, but oftentimes temptation is the tails on the coin where trials is the head, not all the time, but trials and temptations sometimes they, they run together like, like bosom buddies in some respects. And, and James is making that connection here. And he wants us to be reminded as he's talking about trials in verses 2 through 4, and he comes back to it in verse 12. He says, listen, don't be mis- mistook here. God cannot be tempted with evil. This is verse 13, nor does he tempt anyone. So where does temptation originate? And what James says it originates in our own evil desire. It resides inside of us, a propensity and a compulsion to sin. For almost 2000 years, the way that this has been classified by theologians and scholars is original sin. That inside you, inside me, there is a brokenness. We we don't just choose to sin. We are born in such a way that that we will be sinners. It it is something that is inevitable for all of us. There's no one who is righteous. Not even one, Paul would say in Romans chapter 3. So you can call it what you like, but deny it you cannot. That all of us in this room, we are at our core sinners who need to be rescued from ourselves. Now there's some people that sort of romanticize the innocence of children and say, oh, heavens, there's no way I could believe in original sin. Look at this precious little baby here. Look at this precious little child, so innocent, so cool, so calm, so collective. How can this child be a sinner? And I say to that person that says that, you must not have children, I guess, to be able to say that. I mean, that, that, that is only the, the the fun aunt who gets to say that. Who gets to send her niece or nephew back to sister's house there. Because when you live with children, you understand that there's certain things that they just have a honing desire to break rules. You don't have to teach them that. You don't have to teach your child, hey, you know something I'm going to take you to a three-week seminar at the local community college so you can learn to be selfish and to say mine and me. They get that naturally, do they not? This is what you'll never hear said from a parent to, uh, about their own two-year-old. You know, my two-year-old is just way too considerate, way too considerate. You don't hear that. Now, what is the reason that you don't hear that? Because that two-year-old is fallen just like that 22-year-old and 32-year-old parent of that two-year-old. We are fallen human beings and we are lured and we're enticed by our own desire. Paul, I mean, James is, he's got a fishing metaphor right here. And he talks about the unique baits that Satan uses. He's this faithful fisherman and draws our eyes and draws our hearts and There's a sense in which we need to think for a second, how are we tempted, and is temptation sin? And the answer is no, temptation isn't sin. There was a 7th century monk who who talked about these passages in great detail, and he talked about what is the process by which temptation moves to sin. And he says there's three stages, and the first stage is suggestion, that, that we see before our eyes that temptation that, that somehow it, becomes an, it comes into our purview. We, we know it's an option before us. Well, that could be driving down the road. That could be something you see at work, you hear at work. The second stage, Venerable Bede says, is experiment. This is where we move from the suggestion of eyes, the awareness of the temptation, to where we begin to experiment with the lure and the bait that is before us. We try to get as close as we can to be able to test, is this something that is enticing, and is this something that I can get away with without a lot of consequences personally and in my corporate existence? And the final stage the Venerable B talks about, moves from suggestion to experiment to consent. So consent is where temptation moves from what is before us to sin. So what James is talking about right here is the third stage in verse 15. He says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, does what? It brings forth death. So sin has an ultimate goal. And that is a goal of emotional, physical, and spiritual death. This is sin's destination. Now, in our culture, this is so, so misunderstood. And it's it's certainly not emphasized. That three-letter word, sin, is not a word that you hear within our culture. And when you hear it in our culture, you hear a minimization of sin. We do everything that we can do in our culture to normalize what God oftentimes has prohibited in His Word. And it is important for you and I, for you and me, for all of us to hear that the ultimate goal of sin is that desire to lead to sin and that sin to lead to death. And then oftentimes when you hear sin talked about, our culture not only minimizes it, but, but ultimately avoids responsibility for sin. So they're all professions. Many professions that have been built up, and not all of them go in this direction, but there's certainly a temptation to say that all of our sin can be explained by genetic sources, our environmental sources, our upbringing, our circumstances. And what happens is is we're reliving the Garden of Eden. Adam sins, and what's his first temptation? She made me do it. And, and what is the ultimate temptation of that is, is that God, he is saying to God, you made me do it. So there's a sense, even when we talk about sin, that we're talking about it in such a way that moves the blame. You remember that old cliche, the, the devil made me do it? And, the, and what James is saying here is that the blame resides inside of us. That we have a moral responsibility as believers to run from sin and to run toward our Savior. It's the opposite. Notice what James is doing. It's the opposite of what our culture does. Our culture says for you to avoid sin, guess what? Look inside of yourself and and try to do better. Try to to have strategies to not do things that harm yourself or harm others. And what James is saying is, is that you are the problem. You and me, we are the problem. So our answer doesn't reside in us. It resides in not looking within, but moving to number three, looking up, looking without. Because we've talked here this morning about the source of hope in the midst of difficult trials. We've talked this morning about the source of uh, temptation in the midst of the difficult times. Now we need to hear sort of the antidote. We need to hear where do good gifts reside for us in the midst of daily living. And this is where James moves to in verse 1, 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." Every good gift resides not in our ingenuity or our hands, not the wellspring of our talent or our goodness, but rather the gracious gift of our Heavenly Father. Notice the way he's described here. He's described in verse 17 as the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. This is the sense that he is sovereign, that he is the creator, and that he is unchanging. There's no variation or shadow due to change. God is constant. In an ever-changing world around us, stock markets, they rise and they fall. Fashion trends, they come and they go. Nations rise to power and they collapse. We see this within history. Even political leaders, even recent political leaders, they rise to the height and they ascend to the place of immense worldwide influence and popularity. And then they become, well, they they become relics that, that many people don't even know who they are. I don't know if you saw this little clip But there was a NBA playoff game where the crowd was leaving the the arena, and a mother was with her teenage daughter, and they happened to be walking in such a way that former president Bill Clinton was walking out of the arena at the same time, and so the mother sees an opportunity to get a picture with her teenage daughter and our former president. So the daughter's there, poses with uh, President Bill Clinton. And then you see her mouthing to her mother after her mother's taking the picture. Who was that? (laughs) Boy, I tell you, I mean, there is just a sense where everything is in flux. Everything is changing around us. And you just need to be reminded, even when temptation comes your way, even in the midst of trials that come your way, Everything might seem as if it is shifting sand before you, but God is consistent, God is constant, and God is dependable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the wonderful promise of God's word, and he He just tops it off while he's talking about good gifts. He can't help but to move to verse 18, the greatest of all gifts of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's talking about good gifts. He's talking about the nature that's around us, the intellect that we have, the ability to work with our hands, to be able to do what we do. All of life is a gift. All of life should be appropriated with gratitude. And he says, let me tell you about the greatest of all gifts. And that is being born again by the word of truth. What is the word of truth? It's the gospel message that God created everything and everything was good. And there was a fall and Adam and Eve fell and you have fallen, I have fallen. Just as James says, we have a propensity to sin. We are broken creatures in need of a rescuer and that rescuer has come in the form of Jesus Christ. And not only has Jesus lived a perfect life, died a salvific death, but he was raised to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And more than that, he has restored and will continue to restore all that is broken around us. So all of our pains will be transformed to praises. All of our disease will be transformed to doxology. The shackles of sin that are still here upon us will forevermore be released as we're with him and the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth will be before us. This is the word of truth. And what James is saying here is that this is what we are saved By We are brought forth by. We are born again by the word of truth. While the word of truth isn't something that we earn, it isn't something we deserve, it isn't something that we merit. You know something? It is something that we must accept by faith. I have a family member that I love dearly, and she has this unique habit, and the habit is this. When she receives birthday gifts or she receives Christmas gifts, she's there in the living room, and she receives them with all this glee. Oh, thank you so much. She unwraps the uh, wrapping paper that is around it. She saves the bow, and she says, oh, this is exactly what I love. But we know this now because we know her so well. She never opens the gift. She never does, never takes it out of the box. And what she does is is her closet is a QVC uh, showroom of unopened gifts. Gifts that were given for her to enjoy, but she never has opened them. And I'm here to tell you that this gift of salvation is something that some of you have heard about. Some of you have held in your hands and you've unwrapped, but you've never opened your heart to the gift by faith. You've been around it, you've heard it, but you've never opened it by faith. And today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that God is saying to you, I have the greatest gift that could ever be imagined. And that is the gift of your salvation. But you, by faith, must open that gift by faith. Would you receive that gift this morning? Will you bow your head? Will you pray with me? as we think about the source of temptation, as we look within ourselves and see our propensity to sin, could could you know today that you are a sinner? Could you look back in your life and see the ways that you have sinned and fallen short of his goodness and his glory? And today I just want to lead you in a simple prayer. As you see your sinfulness, will you look without, will you look up to God as your Savior? Today I want to offer a prayer. Just inviting you to pray this prayer, receiving this gift. God, today I realize that I'm a sinner. God, today I believe in you and your message of salvation. Today, by faith, I trust you as my Savior and Lord. Today, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. Today, God, I commit my life to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. It's important, Dawson, to understand the source of all things. The source of the water that we drink, it's important that we know where that's coming from. The food that we eat, it is important to know that someone has thought about what the source of that is. And so today, as you think about the way God is speaking to you, would you look ahead to the source of hope in the midst of difficult trials the heaven that awaits you. Will you look within as we think about the source of our own temptation, and will you look up realizing that he is the source of all good gifts, the greatest gift of all being your salvation.